weariness has become a lifetime condition in the year 2020. Constant adjustments for everyone have left many people in a state of weakness and near the breaking point. I have a poem by Joe Bailey that captures that uh, pretty well. I'm going to read this. This is from his book, uh, Psalms of My Life. It was written a number of years ago. And this psalm is called A Psalm While Packing Books. I think you'll pick up on the weariness. This cardboard box, Lord, see, it says bursting limit, 200 pounds per square inch. The box maker knew how much strain the box would take, what weight would crush it. You are wiser than the box maker, maker of my spirit, my mind, my body. Does the box know when pressure increases close to the limit? No, it knows nothing. But I know when my breaking point is near. And so I pray, maker of my soul, determiner of the pressure within upon me, stop it, lest I be broken, or else change the pressure rating of this fragile container of your grace so that I may bear more. As a person who has a lot of books and has packed them numerous times and moved them, I understand the physical reality of this poem. But as a pastor who loves to dive into heart issues with people and increasingly understands my own heart more and more, I understand the spiritual reality of this poem. He's expressing an utter and complete dependence upon the Lord. I have prayed many similar prayers that way. Joe Bailey has given us a cry of faith to either stop the pressure or increase the pressure rating so that we can bear more. This morning, we're going to look at Isaiah's call to a cry of faith in Isaiah chapter 40. It's a, an oft-quoted and, and much-loved passage of Scripture. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 to 31. The key verse is Isaiah 40, 31. But before we get there, I want to look at the first verse, verse 27, because this one reveals the cry of the heart of the person in despair, the person who is frustrated, the person who is weary and weak and hurt and angry and frustrated. It's a universal cry of those of us in despair. This is what Isaiah wrote in chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. When we despair, we are tempted to question God's goodness and God's ability. That's what these Israelites were doing. Can you identify with them from 2,500 years ago? We want to ask God, what is going on? You're the living God of the universe. You're the one that called me. You're the one that I follow. Why is my life under so much pressure and stress? And why am I so weary and so weak? 
we are often given to a sin of unbelief when the circumstances become so strong in our lives. And so we ask those key questions that everybody asks. God, are you there? God, do you care about what's going on in my life? God, are you even able to do anything about what is going on in my life? Isaiah is going to answer those questions for us under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. These universal question of those who despair. And, and what he's doing here in Isaiah 40, 27 to 31, we talked about the context a little bit last week when we were in chapter 41. He's giving comfort to those who are in exile. He is writing about the end of the 8th century, beginning of the 7th century B.C. He's writing about 150 years before the Israelites are in exile. But he's writing as if he is talking to them right now. He wants to make it clear what God has for them because he understands that they are despairing over captivity in Babylon, over the cruel nature of living in a, a fallen world, over dealing with the judgment of God in their lives, and despairing of their circumstances and feeling weary from that. And so God has given him this word to pass along. And he writes to give them a focus and to give us. He writes to give them and us a promise. And he writes to give and them and us an exchange. We want to know how God treats the weary and the worn out and the weak. And the answer is this, that he exchanges his abundance for our inadequacies. That's what we see in this chapter, and it's written in such beautiful language. The first thing that we start with is the focus on God. In chapter 40, verse 28, we see this, that God is the only one who can give the ability to carry on. God is the only one who can give the ability to carry on with strength through our weakness, through our weariness. Isaiah attacks the reader right off the bat. He's, it's almost like he's saying, you want to look elsewhere? Have you really thought about what you're doing here? Have you thought about this? Do you want to look elsewhere other than the living God for your help in time of trouble? So in the first verse, we have the focus, and that is to look to the sufficiency of the living God. Not to look around us, not to find other ways out, not to try it with our own strength. We're already out of strength but to turn to God. And what he does in this verse, he, he gives us five vital truths about the character and the actions of God. He gives us something to focus on, to meditate on as we think about our circumstances and we think about God's involvement in our lives. He wants to remind us of grace and truth that will center our lives on him. Verse 28, this is what he says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Five truths here. The first one is that he is the eternal God. 
He is always available to us. He is everlasting with no beginning and no end. And in the next chapter, in verse 4 of chapter 41, God says, there is none before me, there is none after me. I am the uncreated one. You know what Jesus says in Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega. He has always been and he always will be. And so what does that mean for us? Well, it answers the question, God, are, are you there? And are you aware of what's going on in my life and in my circumstances in the world around me? What does it mean for our world-weary problems? Well, it means that he has seen them before. Even though your situation is very unique and very intricate and has lots of implications and dominoes that could fall and affect others, God is aware. He, he's seen it all before. He is eternal. He is av available to your need. And he will be here when you need him. The second thing we see is that he is the creator of the ends of the earth. In chapter 40, when God wanted to show his might and his power and his strength, he described the, the creation of the stars because they are so big and so powerful and they put out all this light and there's just an infinite, unlimited number of them across the sky. And what he says is, I'm the one who created them. I'm the one who named all of them. I'm fully aware of all that are out there. And because of my power, because of my strength, not one of them is missing. And I sustain them. I lead them out every night. That's the power of God as a creator of the universe. That answers the question for us, is God able is he powerful enough to do anything about our lives? The third thing we see is that he is the Lord. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. And this is the, the name Yahweh. What is the theologic, theological significance of, of the name Yahweh? Well, it speaks of his active presence his relationship that he moves into and his willingness and desire and ability to redeem and to deliver and to save. This is his presence with us. This is the Lord. And this answers the question, does he care? Does he have any compassion? Does he love me? Does he love you? Yes. He is the Lord. The fourth thing we see is that he never grows weary or tired. He's always available. Weary is what happens when you and I work to the point of exhaustion and we have nothing left to give. There's never a day that God can't get out of bed because he answered too many prayers the day before. God is always available. He never grows weary or tired. He doesn't know exhaustion. He is always available at full strength to help you and me. And that should draw us to trust him. Draw us to call on him with a cry of faith. The fifth thing we see is that his understanding is unfathomable. We can never begin to understand his wisdom, 
his insight, his understanding. Paul wrote a doxology in Romans chapter 11 just to praise God for it. He was stumped, but God is never stumped by our problems. He's never baffled by our questions. He's never confused by what is going on in our lives. His understanding is unfathomable. And that gives us hope that he understands, that he will reach out, that he's powerful enough to do things. These are five vital truths about the character of God and about what he is capable of doing. They answer the questions that we have, the, the lies that pull us into the sin of unbelief. When we just want to lash out to God and, and ask, are you even aware? Do you even care? Where is justice for me in this world? Those are the questions that Isaiah knew the Israelites were asking. And so he started off in verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard? What he's asking us to do is to reaffirm what we already know about God. Those five truths that I listed given by Isaiah, they didn't surprise you. You knew that. You may have quit listening because you knew that. He's asking us to reaffirm that we know that, not just intellectually, but to be drawn to God to trust him, to be more dependent upon him because of what we know about him and because he is worthy of our trust and our worship. That's what Isaiah has done. Our focus has to be on the God who is sufficient for us. He knows that we are broken and imperfect people, that we have trouble with sin, we have trouble keeping commitments to our God, that we have burdens that are too big for us. God knows all of that. And he's put himself out there for us, and he's asking us to affirm what we know about him, to believe that God is the one, the only one who is able to deliver us and able to help us carry on when we are weary and worn out. Next thing Isaiah does is he moves from the focus, our focus, on the sufficiency of God to the promise that God gives. In verses 29 and 30, we see this, that God delivers help and God gets the glory. God delivers help and God gets the glory. Verses 29 and 30, and in these two verses, we have a promise that he lays out for us. It gives us strength, that he will give strength to the weary. Hope springs eternal because God is laying this out for us, that this is a promise that we can cling to. He doesn't need anything because he's so powerful. And the truth is that he lives to give. He gets the glory when he gives us strength. When he looks upon our weary condition and we cry out to him, and he gives us strength, he gets the glory. And there's an important uh, principle to remember here is that none of us are so strong that we don't need to cry out to God, that we don't ever get too weary. Because if you think that, that you don't need God in your current circumstances, then you have bought into another sin of unbelief. And you will burn out quickly. 
None of us is that strong. And, and none of us is so weak that God will not offer his strength. God offers strength to everyone in our weakness and in our weariness. He displays his glory, not by getting people to serve him, but by gathering us so that he may serve us. Here's what Isaiah would say in, later in the book in chapter 64, verse 4. He says this, For from the days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. We have this promise that God is for us, that God is the one who acts on our behalf. He is the one who gives strength to the weary. Think about it. We get the help. God gets the glory. God lives to give. He does not withhold. Jesus backed this up with his theme verse. You're familiar with Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We observe the Lord's table today so that we could commune with Christ, so that we could recall his death and proclaim it until he comes. Jesus Christ came to serve. God is displaying his greatness by saying, I'm not the kind of God who needs you and depends on you, but I am totally there for you if you will trust me. What is the promise? Well, we see that in verse 29. He gives strength in our weakness. Here's verse 29. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. This is his promise. Note the words. He, he talks about strength for endurance to go on, the ability to act in the moment of a crisis. Might is, is a word that talks about vigor and vitality and power, means the ability to do what must be done now. God is saying, essentially saying you will have whatever you need, whenever you need it, to do whatever you need to do, and especially if I've called you to do it. God is displaying his strength by giving it to us, and his power supply is unlimited. The second thing we see is that God will supply strength because he knows we need it. Verse 30, though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, he, he picks on the strong to remind all of us th that no one can last forever. No one can endure the strain forever. No one can push through the weariness and work forever. We all have to stop and rest. God knows our frame, that we are but dust. And he is fully aware of our circumstances. And that is why he makes the promise to give strength to the weary. He's going to deliver us from our weariness with strength and with stamina, with his power, we get the help and he gets the glory. That's the promise. And we've seen that we are to focus on the sufficiency of the living God. We see that he has a promise for us that he will give us strength. And then in verse 31, we see that God exchanges his abundance for our inadequacies. And we discover that with this promise, there is a condition. You know that we have a lot of unconditional promises in Scripture, but this one comes with a condition. 
And we're going to see that in verse 31. God provides insight through Isaiah into the spiritual transformation that takes place when we call on the Lord. When we wait on the Lord, we receive strength that restores our joy. It readies us for crises, and it even keeps us going in the daily grind. Let's, first, let's look at verse 31. If those who wait for the Lord, your version might say hope in the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. The first key in, phrase in this verse is wait for the Lord. Waiting for the Lord is perhaps the highest expression of our faith. It might be one of the hardest disciplines in our faith. But this is the condition for receiving the promise. The one who waits on the Lord will be transformed. The one who waits on the Lord will gain new strength. Here's the theological definition. Waiting means patiently enduring in confident hope that God will act decisively for the salvation of his people. Basically, that means that those who wait on the Lord are confident with an expectation that he is going to deliver them, that he is going to empower them while they continue to serve him. You see, that's a key element in this, that we continue to serve him. Our weariness and, and our being tired and worn out is not our excuse to pull back in life from loving God and loving people, from serving him. No, he's asking us to come to him to be empowered to continue. And so we wait for him to deliver us with strength. Our waiting is not a self-centered pause until we're comfortable again. The word wait itself is used figuratively in the Hebrew language. It means to bind together like a cord. Now, I, I will say this. There are about a dozen words for wait. And this one has a couple of uniquenesses. Here's one of them. It means to bind together like a cord. So it doesn't mean to take a cord and wrap it around a few sticks of wood. No, it means to take a strand of a rope and to take another strand and another strand and to braid these, to bind them together because each strand of the rope becomes stronger when they are bound together, when they are braided, when they are plated together, these strands of rope. The st central strand in, in, in our rope is always the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are literally to entwine ourselves about him. And so I want to offer three strands. I want to suggest these, uh, that they might make up our rope based on what it means to wait on the Lord. The first thing is this, is to recognize that waiting necessitates time. Notice I didn't say the word patience. Everybody would have quit listening at that point. Waiting necessitates time. Duh, right? The time involves two aspects of God's work. So as we are waiting on God, we are waiting on his timing. Because remember, his understanding, his wisdom is inscrutable. It is unfathomable. He knows the right way to do things, the right timing to do things. And so we are willing to wait on his timing. The second one is harder. The second aspect 
of waiting on God over time. And that is that we are to learn contentment with that. When Paul talks about contentment, he, he describes it as an acquired taste. He always says, I have learned contentment. What is he doing there? He, he's saying, well, I've learned to trust. Uh, I've learned to be grateful in the meantime. I've learned to be content with what God is doing in his timing. Because if we don't wait on, the, on God that way, then we'll just become impatient and, and we'll turn to our self-solutions, Right? Impatience and despair, anger, frustration, lashing out, giving up. That's not what he wants. He wants us to trust him. We have to recognize that waiting necessitates time. Satan wants to use that time to cause us to choose other options for security, for our comfort, for our significance, our satisfaction. God wants us to wait on him. Contentment comes in actively trusting God with faith and gratitude. The second, second thing I want to look at is that to, to realize that waiting means confident expectation. Waiting makes, means confident expectation. Like I said, there are about a dozen Hebrew words for wait. And this one, in its most literal meaning, means to look forward with expectation. We get the element of hope there. We can have a confident expectation because we are waiting on God. He is the God who delivers on his promises. He is the God who strengthens us when we cry out in faith. He is the God who knows the big picture. He is the God whose source of power is unlimited. One of my favorite passages is Lamentations chapter 3. In verse 25, Jeremiah put it this way, The Lord is good to those who wait on him, to the person who seeks him. We can expect that. We can anticipate his goodness with a hope. George Barna revealed in a survey back in August, I guess just last month, uh, it was a survey of Americans and their faith, kind of a survey of faith in America. And the majority, by far, of Americans believe that faith in anything is better than faith in nothing. Faith in anything is better than faith in nothing. And certainly that's fine. We're just talking about Americans, right? But they went on to narrow it, and they said that 68% of the evangelical Christians, those who uh, self-identify as born again through faith in Jesus Christ, resting on his work on the cross, death and resurrection, 68% believe that faith in anything is greater than faith in nothing. Now, that is absurd. That is absurd. But sometimes we go there, don't we? When we're weary, when we're despairing, Sometimes we just begin to, to want to trust ourselves, our own way out, the recommendations of our friends, whatever the internet, internet has to say. But that does not sound like trusting the living God. Hebrews 11.6 informs us clearly, clearly that faith must be centered on the living God if we're going to see him work. Believing that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, of those who trust him. 
That's what we're told about faith there. It must be focused on Jesus. And when your faith is focused on the Lord, then you and I can live with confident expectation. Here's a third and final strand of the rope. Waiting means active faith. Waiting does not mean passive resignation. It doesn't mean just sitting there as the minutes turn into hours. The implication of hope in God is that we continue to live in obedience to him. Active faith requires our continued walk with Jesus, our continued response to who he is and what he asks us to do. An act of faith. What does an act of faith look like? Well, it's exercised this way. It believes that God is good, believes that God will do right, believes that God can do right, believes that God will do the right thing at the right time. And it continues to do what God has called him or her to do. That's an act of faith. That's what waiting on the Lord means. It doesn't mean just sitting in the closet until God clears everything up. Jesus is the perfect example of an act of faith, of serving while suffering, right? He was physically beat nailed to the cross. He was mentally exhausted and emotionally drained. But spiritually, he was in tune with the Father. And what we see on the cross is that he continues to serve. I think we would all say, yes, he was weary and he was worn out and he was weak. But he continued to serve. He, he said, Father, forgive them. These crowds, the ones that nailed me to the cross... All of these people, they don't know what they're doing. He assured a thief next to him of meeting him in paradise that day. Jesus served on the cross. He took care of the future care of his mother. He told the apostle John to take care of her, to look after her. Jesus was thoroughly worn out and wearied. And yet he served. He continued to serve. He had an active faith to the very end. And we understand some of the pain of that through the last words on the cross that he gave to us. Waiting necessitates time. It is active and it expects God to empower. If we wait, then we meet the condition of the promise. And the second key phrase in this verse is we'll gain new strength will gain new strength. This word gain or renew in some of your versions means to exchange. It was commonly used in, in terms of changing clothes. A person would change these clothes and exchange them for a new set, a clean set of clothes. And, and so what Isaiah is saying here is that in our waiting with active faith, our weariness is exchanged for strength. Our inadequacy is exchanged for God's abundance. Our weakness is exchanged for God's power. That's what we gain when we trust the Lord, when we cry out to him, when we wait on him in the midst of our weariness. 
our faith when it is centered on Jesus is exchanged for power, strength, and might. That's what he says here. And he, he says that it is new. It's not old and recycled power. It's not our strength just freshened up a little bit until it fails again. No, this is a new strength, a new power coming from the living God, moving into your inner being to give you the ability to work and to serve. Strength from an infinite source. This passage reminds me of the promise that Jesus gave to Paul that applies to all of us. You remember it from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. He says, and he has said to me that my grace is sufficient for you. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with stresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then he is strong. When I am weak, then he is strong. I am strong because he is strong in me. You see, Paul was willing to accept that exchange. He was willing to cry out for that. This was a hard situation. If you go back and read the passage that, that Paul dealt with, he wasn't happy about it. He wasn't pleased with God's timing on deliverance. But once he got this promise from God, he was willing to wait. He was willing to trust God, to trust Jesus, to give him strength when he was weak, in his distress, and in his weariness. We've got to own our inadequacy to receive the promise of Jesus. The second key phrase is to gain new strength. The, the result of waiting, we see at the end of the verse, result of waiting on the Lord with active faith is a, a spiritual transformation. And Isaiah de depicts it this way. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Everything is affected as the power of Christ in, is realized in our lives. Inner strength, attitude adjustment, hope restored, joy filling us, and necessary physical strength. The phrases he used, to soar like an eagle, it typically means strength to rise above our circumstances when they are difficult. That can be attitude or outlook. We are told that we will run. It typically re refers to the idea of being in a crisis and needing to react immediately and to walk. We just have stamina for the daily grind as we walk with Jesus. Waiting on the Lord is an active process that brings spiritual transformation. And that's a beautiful thing as it is described here by Isaiah. This powerful passage is a gift of God to broken and imperfect people who are weary and worn out and weak, but who take full advantage of the spiritual resources of the God who has unlimited resources. We must be a people who own our weakness and who turn to the living God and cry out in faith to draw on his unlimited supply, whether you're feeling strong or weary, and to know his strength for the day in every way that we need it. Let's pray.
Dear Jesus, thank you for the privilege of having your